So I want to continue talking about fear. And uh, not only are our states of fear impermanent, but even when they're there, they're not what they appear to be. I had an experience, sort of funny to think about today, a long time ago. I think I might have been sixth grade, but it could have been seventh grade. So 12 years old or something like that. And I, I went to a Catholic school in Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, and um, the basketball team would go down to Chicago and the alternate years, and then the on the other year, the Chicago teams would come up and visit us and stay at our house, and we'd play them in basketball. And so um, so I guess it was sixth grade then, because they came up in seventh grade. So we went down, we took the train down. Everyone gets put up in another boy's house. And uh, so, you know, we were going to play basketball uh, games that evening, but uh, the morning and midday was free, so... This boy and a couple of his friends uh, took me to the L, the elevated train that kind of goes downtown in Chicago, and uh, kind of give me a little sightseeing of downtown Chicago, which is a pretty big deal for me anyway. I mean, just, I think at that age, I probably wouldn't have gone to downtown Minneapolis by myself, and to be with some strange people I didn't know, and uh, sure enough, it started to get more interesting when we got to the station. And they said, oh, we never pay. We just sneak up onto the platform. And it's an elevated high-speed line like we have here in Minneapolis now. And they were going to, like, I don't know, climb a tree and jump over the fence or something like that. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I was a pretty straight kind of kid. And so I, you know, kind of went. And wouldn't you know, as soon as I get, you know, pay my money and get on the platform, a train comes up, and there's all this commotion, people getting on and off. I have no idea if they've gotten on or not. I've got, you know, 10, 15 seconds or whatever you have while the door is open. I say, I'm just going to get on. I'm assuming they're on the train. Of course, they weren't on the train. <laughs> it took me, I don't know, two or three stops before I had searched the train and made sure they weren't on, and then I got off. And there I was, and... <laughs> Nowadays, I think parents are more neurotic, but then, you know, back in the, this is in the 60s, you know, it was like, it never would have occurred to, like, get somebody's phone number. <laughs> I didn't even know the person's last name I was staying with. <laughs> I don't even think I knew the name of the church and school. So anyway, but I, the, the train, the track is elevated, and I had a sense of what direction it was going. So I just sort of followed the track, and and as you might imagine, I was pretty afraid. And um, and you're right at that age, you know, 12 years old, uh, you know enough like you're not supposed to be afraid, <laughs> but you are afraid. But anyway, the reason I brought up the story is because uh, I thought tonight it would be nice to talk about transforming fear, like how do we transform fear. And it's interesting, even when we're in the, in the real thick of it, whatever I was imagining, like never being found, <laughs> wandering the streets of Chicago forever. <laughs> and uh, But I remember distinctly walking into a little grocery store and buying a Three Musketeers bar. <laughs> so there he was, like, 
you know, death on death's doorstep. <laughs> but I had some loose change in my pocket, and I'm not going to let this opportunity go by. I'll just finish the story before I kind of make the point. So eventually, I just wandered for, I mean, hours and hours. And uh, I guess the, the other boy had told his parents, not the whole truth, but that I was some kind of idiot and <laughs> rushed to get on the train before he could or something like that. I'm not sure how he explained what happened to them. <laughs> but the first thing when they... They eventually found me, the mom driving the boy around, and he jets out of the car and runs to me. Instead of saying, oh, God, I'm so glad we found you, he said, don't tell my mom. (laughs) (laughs) So I I learned a lot. And it reminds me, too, uh, I used to work with kids and just being around a lot of uh, young my own young siblings, younger siblings, and uh, other kids. And, uh, you know, one trick that older people, adults, have with kids when they're in some kind of trauma is you can sometimes come in the side door and get them interested in something or get them to laugh about something. And they could be totally absorbed in their trauma, their fear, their anger, their whatever. But if you can just sort of hook their brain on something, they can forget it for a while. And then there's this very, if you watch, observe, it's a very interesting place where once they realize you've cheated them, then then they'd like want to rush back, but it's it's a little bit, you know, something's been exposed, right? Because they were completely, the whole world view was this is terrible, it's wrong, it's not fair. And all of a sudden they've gotten, they've dropped it for a moment. And I've seen that sometimes they get really angry at you for like revealing the house of cards. Like it's all a projection, that whole thing. And that's a little bit, I don't know how much, I think I even understood a little bit on my own. You know, I was sort of traumatized and, uh, but there was part of me that knew it was going to be okay. You know, at some point it would be okay. And uh, and it was sort of funny to sort of on the one hand being afraid and a little weepy, and on the other hand sort of being greedy for a candy bar. And, you know. So these cracks are important around fear. You know, even something like feeling really... Uh, heavy as we do sometimes on retreat and self-absorbed and about or just about how difficult life is. I remember during one of the three-month retreats I was at at IMS just really indulging in the view of dukkha. Not my personal dukkha, but just the world. Everything about the world. Dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Just seeing it. Just so convinced and, and indulging like whipping up this sort of force in my mind, you know, drama about how everything's impermanent, nothing can be counted on, even things that are satisfactory aren't really satisfactory, and on and on. And then uh, 
but just noticing how it's like even though on some kind of rational this is think about rationality it's always coming out of some irrational view and then the rational mind is sort of rationally supporting that irrational view or unsubstantiated view but it seems it seems logical because based on the assumption that that view is correct then we sort of align the facts that make that in a seemingly logical way so i had this going this sort of because you can do that about life you can pick out the facts and it and really reinforce the fact that it's insecure there's a lot of meanness a lot of injustice and then it ends and on and on <coughs> But I'd start noticing things like uh, I was happy or the food is good or, you know, just, you know, lying down at the end of a long day feels good, being in bed, feeling safe. And uh, eventually it just dawned to the mind, like, what a ego trip, what a huge sort of drama. Because within it, the mind was sort of feeling like, I... I'm really being honest, truthful. <laughs> but it was just, you know, it was just another one of those projections that, of course, from the inside, that they always, it always feels appropriate. And this is the thing about fear. When we're in that <clears throat> bubble, you know, it, it seems very, it seems as real as anything seems real. And the question is, do we value the certainty more than seeing everything that's there? Like seeing the inconsistency of other things that are presenting themselves. Or can we not handle inconsistency? Like we really want certainty. I'm doomed. I see this all the time in my relationship with Wynn, my wife. Um, <laughs> and just so, in case you're wondering, I have a really good relationship. <laughs> or we do, I think. <laughs> seems pretty healthy. Seems pretty honest. But it's like, you know, you can get, I can get in these funks where I'm just like, I've had it. This is too much. I can and it's so disconcerting to like uh have a nice interaction with her or to see something that I appreciate about her because it it doesn't fit the sort of drama that's going on in my mind, you know whatever that might be the the particular thing that's completely unacceptable and has to cease and <laughs> how many times do I have to point this out to her? <laughs> So sometimes when we're on a retreat and we have a lot of negativity about the practice, it's like we won't let ourselves notice little moments of ease, moments of uh, spacious perspective, because it doesn't fit. And I mentioned, I think it was last night, although it could have been in one of the small groups, you know, we, we can, our mind is really simple. We can only really have one view at a time. And it's and it's pretty primal. It's like either the world is safe 
and we're just operating with that point of view, or the world's not safe. And then once we're operating with a particular view, like I said a moment ago, we tend to uh, be more interested in consistency and certainty than being actually interested in the truth. So we make, and, and because most of the time we think the world isn't safe, then we're really not interested. In fact, we're irritated by evidence to the contrary, that it's okay, or it's okay to relax. Like, if we did a survey, you know, is the world safe, or is this moment okay? I mean, we're pretty convinced that this isn't it. This moment really, I mean, it may be okay enough, but it isn't, it isn't sort of like our, the peak experience we were looking for this moment, right? And we, we have a lot of certainty about that, that it's coming later when I get my act together or whatever. Then, then things will start lining up and I'll have that really insightful or expanded, light, beautiful, holy, sacred, divine, mystical experience that, that will change everything. This is the real cost of living in our projections. It's a beautiful poem by another Mary Oliver poem. It's pretty popular. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard this. It's called Morning Poem. Every morning the world is created under the orange sticks of the sun. Under the orange sticks of the sun, the heaped ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches. And the ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands of summer lilies. If it is your nature to be happy, you will swim away along the soft trails for hours, your imagination alighting everywhere. And if your spirit carries within it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, there is still somewhere deep within you a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. Each pond with its blazing lilies is a prayer heard and answered lavishly every morning, whether or not you have ever dared to be happy, whether or not you have ever dared to pray. I really like the imagery at the beginning. The ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches and the ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands of summer lilies. You know, there's this thing about dark and dusk, dawn, you know, when the light is really subdued and gray. Some uh, filmmakers, especially apocalyptic filmmakers, they can capture this, uh, the kind of the gray and just the dim lit, dimly lit. And uh, there's something very primal because the way our eyes work, they're not very effective in that light. So, just, I think, probably genetically, we don't like having to be out there 
when that light is that way. And it's, it's existentially threatening, that dark, gray, it's like we just see shadows, shapes, and they, they're lifeless. You know, there's no color in them. There is no real dimension even when, uh, when we have very little light. And that sort of perceptual distortion, because it's not like things have changed, right? It's just that there's not good light. And then the light comes out and it's very alive and vivid dimensional, rich, again. So, again, just uh, loosening the screws a little bit about these states of fear that we get embedded in, we get caught in, lost in, trapped in. It, it feels very real in the same way that dark, gray, uh, formless, amorphous perception feels flat and scary. There was an article, several articles in Tricycle a number of years ago, maybe 2003, um, and I want to share from a couple of them. One from Ken McLeod. He's a well-known teacher, author. Um, he was a student of Kalu uh, Rinpoche, a well-known Tibetan teacher who died a while back. He's in L.A. And then also Ajahn Amaro has a short article in this too. This is from Ken McLeod section. <clears throat> Taking Fear Apart. So, you know, we've learned now that uh, fear arises when somehow either the physical entity or any conception, any <coughs> thing my mind has conceived, if it's threatened, then the response is to be afraid. So whatever the mind or the heart is established in, is taking personally, Whenever that's threatened, then there's fear. That's just the natural response to whatever ground the mind has created and attached to, projected and attached to, whatever ground it imagines is there. When that's threatened, then there's fear. And of course, because any kind of ground we create for ourselves is always a projection it has the appearance of ground in a groundless reality. So it's always going to be insecure. So whenever we think we're safe, we're not safe. Like whenever we think we have ground, there will be fear. You can't have safety without feeling threatened. You know, I know it's almost like a cliche to say, you know, real fear is not needing to be safe. I mean, real freedom from fear is not needing to be safe, or a total acceptance of impermanence, or realization of 
there's nobody, there's change, but it doesn't happen to anybody. It doesn't belong to anybody. And in his article, Ken McLeod talks about, he uses the different realms of existence in Buddhist cosmology to talk about, for us human beings, all the different ways, what we do with fear, basically. And so these should, all of these should be familiar, but he talks about them in terms of the different realms, like hell realms, I don't know if you know Buddhist cosmology, but <clears throat> at the bottom, hell realms, beings that are in hell realms, hungry ghosts, beings that have a huge appetite but can't satisfy it, <coughs> animal realm, human realm, the warring god realm or titans, <clears throat> the deva realms. So the way he describes that is like one response to fear is to try to destroy something or seek revenge. And that he calls the hell realm. You know, it's like being aggressive, thrashing about. It's like uh, we see this again with children when they're really afraid. You know, when you have a young child, an infant, and uh, or the, I guess a little bit older when they really have attachment with their main caregiver, and then that main caregiver isn't around and you're babysitting, and it is they're in an existential crisis, and they just start thrashing. You just there's not much you can do to make them feel safe because safety for them is when there's this person who smells this particular way, looks this particular way, that's safety. Anything else won't do. And they don't mind hitting you or doing whatever. They just, that's what they, they're in a hell realm because of their fear. And so are we at times. You see this with yogis, with meditators on retreats, especially longer retreats, where somebody gets in a hell realm, and you just, you kind of like walk into the tea space, or, you know, and you just know this person is totally out of their mind, they're desperately trying to get some ground, trying to uh, find some safety, and they can't, they try tea, they try, you know, this, they try that, nothing works. <laughs> Steve Bird, a good friend, <clears throat> a long-time Common Ground person, uh, tells a story a lot, so I think it's okay to share, of being on a retreat. This is a long time ago. And uh, and really had a deep opening to the sort of fundamental change, changiness of phenomena of impermanence. And then, after that liberating insight, uh, decided he didn't like it. <laughs> you know, took the groundlessness per personally. And just, again, had one of those nights, you know, just often, you know, when you when you start having insight and, and been on a retreat for a while, it's like you don't even need much sleep to begin with. And then when you have insight, you have all this energy. So you don't even get the comfort of disappearing into deep sleep. You're just sort of there, feeling that everything's changing, no ground and desperately Ronnie ground. And he started searching, this was in, at a Catholic retreat center in Missouri, and uh, started searching all the way, everywhere he could, to find something. And he found like a newspaper, or a magazine or something, and in the like, middle of the night, just like, <laughs> kind of absorbing back. I remember 
having a bad drug trip back, right when I was starting meditating. It's just like, I learned very quickly, don't do meditation and drugs at the same time. So luckily, meditation won out. So, and it was like, you know, as it can happen with hallucinogens, you know, the world dissolves, it's all fine, until you want the world back, you know, and then, then you got a problem. <laughs> you know, so it's like, great, freedom, and then uh, wanting solid ground, and just like being in a hell realm for a while, and then, I mean, for hours, but then for weeks after, sort of a sort of hell realm. Uh, and I just found myself like, like just thinking about solid things and food and just like anything that sort of was more earthbound. So partly hell realm, partly hungry ghost realm, right? Because that's what the hungry ghost realm does. It's like uh, the the mentality of like gathering things around you. So that's like moving from the hell realm to the hungry ghost realm. This is another response to fears. Like we just hold tight to our stuff, you know, we put more sweaters on, or we take more food than we need, we could possibly eat. <laughs> you see this on retreat. People, this is why Leslie said at the beginning, you know, just maybe the first go-round, instead of acting out your fear and filling your plate high, just take a normal amount. You can always go back if you're still hungry. Because the idea is to take more and more. People start taking a lot of blankets or whatever to... You know, just it's just like, if I could just get more, if I could just feed that appetite more, whatever the appetite is, then I'll feel safe. And the animal realm is to get, you know, very methodical, very tuned in to survival. And it's, so it's more than, it's more sophisticated than just grabbing stuff and, you know, packing it away. It's like really thinking everything in terms of a threat. You know, who's a threat? How can I prepare for what might come my way? So it's this very strategic, very cool uh, um, way of creating some sense of safety, like we're, we're figuring out every angle. Even stupid things like, okay, if there's a fire, how will I get out of here? You know, <clears throat> if there's a huge windstorm, are there any trees? What room should I be in? You know, all these sort of things that we're just figuring out to feel safe. Now, what do you think the human realm does to deal with their fear? So a little bit more sophisticated, I guess. It's like, stay distracted with a lot of sense pleasures. You know, two scoops of hot chocolate is rich, four scoops better. (laughs) Right? Turn the heat up a little hotter. Take a find where the bathtub is, take a hot bath. So it's like luxuriating in the pleasant experiences that we can have to have some space, some distraction from the fear. Yeah, maybe it's a scary world out there, but this is pretty nice. So don't don't think about that. Just absorb into this pleasant realm. That's why, you know, the basic ideal at the human realm is to be really, really wealthy and to have, you know, all these wonderful, interesting, beautiful experiences. Have people who do your nails 
Wouldn't that be nice? You know, and to push the skin down and so they never, you know, they're really smooth and you never get a hangnail and have your teeth all fixed and beautiful and, you know, just on and on. There's really no end to it. And on some level, it's nice. I mean, I'm not, it would be nice to have somebody to do my nails <laughs> if it weren't so politically incorrect. But <laughs> So that's the, that's how we can deal with our fear on that level. And then uh, the titans, the warring gods. Or, and of course, these different realms of existence, don't think of them happening out there. They're just within our own human realm, right? Sometimes we're in the hell realm. Sometimes we're in the hungry ghost realm. Sometimes we're just an animal, being strategic, figuring out all the angles, how to keep ourselves safe, how to avoid threats. Sometimes we're the human being who's just uh, getting really sophisticated about what's pleasant to the nth degree. All you have to do is walk into the, you know, the Kowalskis and Whole Foods and co-ops of the world, and it's just amazing, the sort of sophistication of our pleasures. Used to be that co-ops were these sort of run-down, you know, bulk rice... <laughs> textured soy protein <laughs> not anymore and so warring gods you know they're playing with power and you know we can get captivated we can forget how impermanent everything is how you know whenever there's power there's people trying to take it away we just somehow think we're going to be we're going to end up that person on top you know, with that great view and everyone bending to our will, whether we do it with charm, or physical beauty, or wealth, or, you know, whatever. So we have our ways to manipulate, to wield power. And it's this competitive realm, and it's totally absorbing to be in that realm of power. You know, even little ways, like we can feel that surprisingly, even in our cars on the freeway, you know, you can't do that to me, you know. I'll show you either by passing the person later or if you think you're more cool, you know, you sort of, I'm going to back off and just let you have your own rage trip all by yourself, you know, and I'm going to be the powerful one just sort of backing up a bit. So, but it's all kind of this power thing. I'll show you that you can't bother me. Even that is a power trip. <coughs> and then the devas, the celestial beings, they're into um, status, protecting their status and position. It's sort of like uh, thinking they're above it all. You know, like this is for me, my my sort of, version of a deva realm is, okay, I've got enough money in the bank, I'm just going to buy a little place on the south shore of Lake Superior, I'll have enough money in the bank, I know how to live frugally, and I'll just sort of hang out, you know, meditate, commune, commune with nature, and the grubbing world, the messy, greedy world, hateful world, you guys just take care of yourselves, you know. <laughs> But I'm not going to have anything, any part of it. Because you know, I'm in my little deva realm. I have my 
my perfect status apart, transcendent, and it's protected, you know, because <coughs> nobody will know where I am. And uh, we think, you know, that it, it... One of the descriptions of the Deva realms, this sort of surprising thing is that these, you know, as it's told, at least, <coughs> these creatures or these beings, you know, they exist for very, very long times, like vast amounts of times versus like a, the length of a human being. And then, and they're like in the full bloom of youth, of young adulthood, their almost their entire existence until the last minutes, you know, and so it all falls apart. They go right from sort of like everything is great to the whole thing, the whole rug getting pulled out from under them. Like, do you mean this ends? And it just goes on forever, ever, ever. So it's so easy to imagine that the status, this sort of refined, protected place is it until it isn't anymore. You can imagine what that feels like. The Brian Williams of the world, if you've been reading the news lately, the, if you don't know, he was a very charming, good-looking, I think the most popular news anchor on television for a long time now, and has had a very hard, fast fall. And uh, it's not about being fair or not. It's just interesting how quickly that can happen. So this is good to, to recognize these different realms that we now inhabit around fear and to sort of see how ultimately they don't work. You know, that, that one, it's a lot of stress to hold to, to imagine that there's a workaround for realistic fear, which is the fear of things being impermanent, ungovernable. But Ken McLeod says here, in terms of how to work, how to take apart fear, how do we experience fear or terror without crumbling into reaction and the six realms? Sit with attention in the experience of fear and you become aware of the feeling itself and how it resonates with the other areas of life. You become, of, you become aware of older, uncomfortable, buried feelings. You understand and know directly the structure that formed in you to keep you from being present in your life. The task is to take the structure apart, dismantle the projections, and no fear directly as it is, a movement of emotional energy. Now we've talked about in the past that to do that we need a lot of trust. We can't, you know, when we're literally being terrorized by the fear, believing it, believing there's a monster of some kind. And again, the monster can just be as simple as not feeling good enough. That can be the big hairy monster. So it doesn't have to be something like death or disfigurement or, you know, whatever. It can just be not feeling good enough. But because, like uh, as Ken says, because there's so... One fear 
reverberates with all fears. So when that fear is activated, that fear body, the whole kind of primal existential insecurity gets activated. There it is. So we need to practice trusting so that we can, in moments at least, trust that feeling that comes up. The next thing Ken says then, Ken McLeod says, is then you want to ask the question in terms of the reactive pattern, right? So he's giving us these six examples, being that hell realm being and thrashing about, getting revenge, (coughs) hitting because you hurt, you want someone else to hurt, or gathering, 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 or becoming obsessed about survival and all the possible dangers, or diving into pleasures, obsessing with pleasures, obsessing with power, obsessing with the sort of being above it all, forever. That imagined safe place. So, you, you, we need to, once we have a balanced attention, we need to catch the pattern. So, you might be like on retreat, one more time, you know, the 26th time in this sit, you, you catch yourself thinking about dinner. Or thinking about, uh, doing something fun with your best friend or partner. Or whatever it might be. So then you kind of get, oh, what's going on here? He says, so ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this thought? Why am I going upstairs for another cup of tea? Why am I moving my body again in the set? Not in a judging way, but just to get interested. He says, to cut through the layers of projection or suppression until you arrive at, I don't know. Right? Because it, without reflection, it seems to make sense that we keep going upstairs for tea, expecting to find some amazing sense pleasure, and only to find tea. (laughs) You know? Like, honey only goes so far. You see this on retreats, you know, what people will do to get a little sense treat. What I have done. I'll tell you one thing I've done. Just like uh, at IMS, you know, it's they don't have desserts that often, maybe once a week, maybe sometimes twice a week, depending on the era that <coughs> I was there. But anyway, during the vast times between desserts, thinking, you know, that's how I'm going to manage the yucky feeling. They almost always have toasted sesame seeds. Often there's butter and there's always honey. And sometimes when people weren't looking, because this would be embarrassing, you know, I'd put a couple tablespoons of toasted sunflower seeds in a little coffee cup. And then this is the embarrassing part. I put a little butter, not a little, I put a big thing of butter in there. And then as if I had tea in there, I'd put some honey in. <laughs> Mix it all up. It's pretty nice. But there's nothing else. 
And, you know, the, the amazing thing is there's just so much turmoil about the choice to do it, the doubt, the judgment. Is anybody watching? You know, the greediness while eating, the great, huge disappointment when it's all done, that <laughs> it's still the same old mind, you know, that nothing has really changed. <laughs> so it's, we can start noticing, ask the question, why am I doing this? Why am I acting out one of these realms? Seeking, and then we'll see that, I don't know, because it doesn't make sense. We when we look at it, we realize it doesn't really take care of the underlying groundlessness, the underlying vulnerability of being, of just being a human being. It doesn't change the facts. And then he says, and then we're, we can, with practice doing this, we can be left with that feeling, the, the underlying feeling that the fear arises out of which is, we're getting close to some good work here. He says, Stop doing the reactive activity. The feeling will be right there. Enter into it and be the feeling. Being the feeling is different from being with the feeling. So basically, you know, when he's saying be the feeling, it's like we have to stop judging it And we have to stop being with the feeling in order to make it go away or to make it better. So it really needs, like sometimes we use words, I use words like this, a total submission, a total surrendering, letting go. Or even, to be more provocative, like dying to the feeling, not expecting to survive, but but trusting that it's true. The feeling is true. So we say yes to it. It's there, so we say yes to it. And then it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. I mean, that sort of breaks the crust where we realize it won't kill us. It won't destroy us. And then he, he starts asking us, you know, just how he sort of lays out the instructions to start, and so does Ajahn Amro consciously bringing it up in moments during the day. And then when you can bring it up, then notice like it's there, and then it starts to fall away. That that underlying feeling, the, the you could call it the, the basic underlying uneasiness of the heart, existential uneasiness. One teacher called this an existential itch. Something is just, fundamentally unnerving, uneasy. Because, and it basically it's wrong view. I mean, from a Buddhist point of view, conceptual point of view, as long as there's wrong view, there's a sense of separation, nothing seems to make sense. But we always try to solve that problem, that nothing seems to make sense, from the point of view of separation. Like, how, from this self-view, can I make this make sense? Well, you can't. But we keep trying. And that's that that's why there's always fear. So we gotta get back to that basic feeling that comes out of wrong view, self view. The the, the the sort of raw feeling 
of what it is to be, to construct a sense of being apart, and the basic insecurity of that construction, that projection of me being apart from the world. And then we want to bring it up, and we notice that it starts to fall away. When we have a balanced awareness of it, we're not totally terrorized by it anymore, we're willing to feel it, we're not afraid of the feeling of it, we start seeing it falls away, and what chemical says, keep bringing it up, so that you're having many, many experiences of that underlying uneasiness falling away, falling away, falling away, until you can keep finding it all day long. So it's not like bringing it up a couple times, but that basic terror, uneasiness, it's just like your best friend. I remember in one of Carlos Castaneda's books that I read a long time ago, really liked, his teacher, Don Juan, said something about, you know, keeping death, I think, on your left shoulder, maybe, as your advisor. You know, it's the same idea. You hear this in different ways from different traditions, but this idea of whatever we're most afraid of, we, we keep it close. It's like spiritual gold that we want to keep close. And we realize that we can live our life with it and we can see it sort of right in the middle of it. Like the awareness of it doesn't require me pushing it away. Like I'm over here in my deva realm, this wise person, seeing that over there. But it's more like right in the middle of no ground, right in the middle of not knowing. Like the don't know mind, don't really know what's going on here. Right in the middle of that, having a clear sense that I don't know. So the clarity isn't distant from the not knowing, the insecurity. And Zen, they have that, you know, Nibbana and Samsara are one. It's kind of a, can be confusing. But I think what they're, they're pointing to is that separating the compulsive need to separate yourself from what the mind finds hard to bear, like insecurity or the groundlessness, never works. It's like fundamentally flawed to feel like you need space. And that's how we, initially, that's what we do. We have space. It's like, I can't look at this now. Maybe tomorrow. We'll talk about this later. No, I can't talk about it now. Because we're too in the middle of the pain. So we feel like, I need some distance, and then I can deal with this. Which is totally understandable. But we want to move to the place where there's fundamental existential uneasiness it's like we can function with it, we can look at it within, being terrorized by it, we can still look at it. Because that's ultimately the dropping away is, you know, that, that complete and total exposure. He ends his section, his little two-page article by saying, you no longer believe what the feeling says about the world. So the impulse to go to war, to fight, to grasp at security, to protect status, dissipates. Because you see clearly 
you are more likely to notice, because you see clearly, you are more likely to notice what is out of balance. And you understand the connections between the imbalances and the suffering in the world. Buddhist practice is not an effort to confirm or validate a sense of what we are. It is about seeing and experiencing what is. We let go of fixed positions as we understand that all experience is ineffable. It can't be grasped by ideas or concepts. So the, the freedom from fear doesn't exist in the world defined by thought or concept. Because concepts, thoughts, are um, not the experience. You know, the meaning that concepts, I should say, the meaning that concepts or ideas or thoughts provide are never going to be helpful to go beyond fear. So as long as we're trying, we're using conceptual meaning to feel safe, we'll always be vulnerable to fear. We literally, every time we identify with some conception, fear is there. You can't believe in something on a conceptual level or hold to something on a conceptual level without insecurity. So it's like... uh, Trusting the moment enough to to let go of that dependency. And it's this chicken and egg. It's like we hold to our thoughts because we feel unsafe. And we're pretty sure that if I just think hard enough, I'll get some safety. And, you know, we're not really stupid. We do get a little safety. We rethink things. And this current conception it's a little less toxic than the current, the previous conception. So it's a little bit more stable. Like even the conception, you know what? We're all doing the best we can. We're all these human beings with our own particular conditioning, and we're all doing the best we can to be happy. And that, that makes me feel a little bit more safe. Like I, I'm not as terrorized by making mistakes when I realize I'm doing the best I can. And I'm less li- likely to judge you for your mistakes when I'm realizing, when I'm remembering, I'm believing in the thought, we're all doing the best I can. But it only works to a degree. And then when you do something really wrong, then I wonder, maybe you're not doing the best you can, you know? Or I really act out and do something stupid. I'm not doing the best I can, right? And then, then it feels like, again, like this existential violation. In our whole world, like a, a free fall, we don't, we have to desperately try to patch our conceptual universe back together. What does this all mean? Gil Fransdahl has this great little teaching. He says, Buddhism is not so much about what it all means, but getting interested in the need, the mind's need for meaning. What would it be like not to have to define this or explain why things happen. You know, why bad things happen to good people sometimes, for example. That's how it is, right? Can we just relax with 
the world being the way that it is. You know, there's birth and there's death. And sometimes the death comes very quickly. You know, just a young infant, days old, or miscarriage. And sometimes, you know, 95, 103. Do we need to explain it in some way? Karma, like we use even karma that way. Somebody's karma. As if that somehow, you know, it's like trying to make us feel better. But does it? Does it really work? Kind of describing it in different ways? The Buddha talks about all these underlying tendencies to define, to create safety, you know, all the sort of the churning, the movement of sankara, of intention, motivation to create some ground, these underlying tendencies, that we should practice seeing them as this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Maybe I'll just end by sharing um, from Tony Packer. She's a wonderful, was a wonderful teacher. Um, started out as a Zen practitioner and teacher and then didn't want to be contained by any form. I forget what she ended up calling what she did, something like an awareness teacher, but I don't even think she liked that term very much. She had a wonderful place up in upstate state New York called Springwater. She has a couple books that are very good. This is from an audio talk that I listened to a long time ago where she's talking about working with pain. Someone mentioned that through the course of the retreat, she began to open to this intense pain in her being. Although it was very painful, it also felt wonderful to be feeling. You might notice this too, when you, you know, do what Ken McLeod said and you notice your reaction to the feeling of pain and you ask, why am I doing this? And you, you sort of cease doing the action which exposes the feeling. You know, when we're acting out, we don't notice the feeling. Or when we're suppressing, we don't notice the feeling. It gets sort of buried in the body. But in that moment of about to act it out, and then we decide not to. What's left is that, that basic feeling right there. And it's very enlivening because the system is expending so much energy to not be close to that feeling. And so when we're actually close to that feeling, it's like the whole world opens up. I mean, that's what great pain, existential pain, fear is. It's just, what else could it be but life energy? It's just a huge amount of life energy that the system is working really hard not to be with. And that's why we feel so <clears throat> disconnected. And that's why we're so paranoid, right? Which just makes us do more of the same. This is the great tragedy. This is what the Buddha said motivated him to teach, is seeing human beings suffering and their response to the suffering was exactly what caused the suffering. 
and even though he thought what he had come to understand was too subtle for anybody to get, he decided to teach because it was unbearable to see sort of this pattern that we see ourselves, we can see ourselves. So Tony Packer goes on, she says, feeling, being alive is almost always chosen over being numb or repressed if we are conscious of the choice. Let me reread that. Feeling, being alive, is almost always chosen over being numb or repressed, if we are conscious of the choice. Still, there may be many times when shutting down is an act of self-protection. The problem is, when this becomes a habit, it is done automatically. So we choose numbness without being aware of the implications of the choice. The more disconnected we have been, the more frightening it can be to open again and to feel. How to be with pain. Start out by not knowing. Because we have to be with it without the armor of some conception about it. The mind telling the mind what it is. We have to be with the feeling without the mind telling itself what it is. How to be with pain? Start out by not knowing. Watch the ever-so-subtle attempts by the body and mind to push it away, as if to say, I can't stand this. Don't assume this voice. Seeing things wisely means seeing the potential contraction before it fully arises and dominates. Because it is seen or felt, it loses its seductive power. Unconfuse yourself by starting with not knowing. Unconfuse yourself by starting with not knowing. Everything leads to everything in this work. I don't know how one can give it up once it has gotten into it, once one has gotten into it. It's ungiveupable. The body recoils. Somehow we live under the assumption that the pain is dangerous. But is it? That's really, that's the question we need to be at least interested. Is it dangerous? Probably if you've come on a number of retreats, you're suspicious of whether it's actually dangerous, right? Instead of thinking you're just, you know, a glutton for punishment, you put a positive spin on it. I don't quite believe this is as bad as it appears or as dangerous as it appears to me. So we'll leave it here for tonight. We'll pick it up again tomorrow night and in, in the small groups. Take a few seconds to let go of the words. Thanks for listening to these teachings. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.